Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy, and uh, I don't know what's wrong with them today, referring to us as the uh, best-looking scientist in the business. Well, I don't speak for myself, but I do speak for my team who's on the line. Dr. Ray, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? Good, good. Happy New Year. Excited to be back on the air oh. to talk about science. Yeah, it's weird when we get to February and I realize it's the first time I've seen some of you and uh, it feels like the year's half over, you know, but hey, that's that's the way it goes. Good morning, Dr. Laura. Good morning. Yeah, Happy New Year. Happy yeah, it New is February, year, but I'm so, I'm so excited for the to be back on the show. And <laughs> Dr. Linden, hey. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It is an honor to be back. You know, you've already done two shows, started back a little bit early and I've been listening to the shows. We've had some cracker guests already this year, so you must be pretty excited to start maybe getting some other humans in the studio. With yeah, you look, we had a hint of that. We had a hint of having uh, you guys back in the studio and then, you know, there was a little hiccup uh, earlier this week, which was, you know, a bit of a, a sad scenario. But, um, but you know, I do feel a bit vindicated, you know, back in March last year, I was saying aerosol transmission, aerosol transmission, and as, as were many people and, and being ignored. And, and now look, oh, wow. Um, amazing, you know. Um, what's that phrase? You know, absence of evidence isn't ev- uh, evidence of absence. I think that's yeah, a lesson in that for all of us. Anyway, uh, oh, Laura, you on the upside chair. is you get to have that title of best looking scientist in the studio. <laughs> so, which I've held for twelve months. For. <laughs> what are you saying it would go if you came in hmm. no, okay no no of course no, not no, that's okay no. that's okay all right we better jump into some news because we have uh four guests on the show today um some pretty exciting stuff actually and um one of the discussions is going to be fabulous because it's a, a researcher uh, an older researcher not older but you know a and let's call him uh, old enough to have a daughter who is also potentially becoming a researcher and there's going to be an interesting discussion about whether or not he recommends that or not given his experiences and how difficult it is to get funding these days in research so that'll be that'll be fun that'll be fun but uh let's start with some news um dr ray we'll start with you uh dr shane i saw a really cool uh advancement about using uh renewable carbon feedstocks so we know we've heard about finding renewable sources for energy But one other thing that sometimes people forget about petroleum is we use it as a basis for so many chemicals that we manufacture. Um, We make plastics, detergents, and hand sanitizers. And we we do it from a class of chemicals called olefins, which are very easy and straightforward and, and surprisingly energetically cheap to get out of petroleum. But when you start to have natural gas, um, or, or biomass, the steps to get to chemicals are a little bit harder to do. And they can do it, but there's a, a, there's a fair amount more inefficiencies. The first thing they do is they'll take the natural gas or, um, or biomass and they'll convert it to something called syngas, which is a mixture of carbon monoxide. So remember, that's the one you don't want to breathe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and hydrogen. And then that is then converted to an olefin chemical. But the process to do that is not fantastic, where... 50% of that feedstock ends up being made into CO2 and methane, 
which are greenhouse gases and is not desirable. And so a group from actually Wuhan University and the Chinese Academy of Sciences in Beijing have developed a catalyst that actually reduces that waste by about half. And so you only see about 25% of it formed as CO2 and, and, and methane. And the rest of that syngas, which can be made from, say, a biomass, is actually converted efficiently to uh, an olefin, the feedstock that you go on and make chemicals with. And um, it was just, a, a, I really liked it for a couple of reasons. One, it showed that, you know, to get away from petroleum takes more than just, it's more than just about energy generation in cars. It's about weaning ourselves off all these feedstocks for all these chemicals and products that we use in our lives as well. Um, the other reason I liked it is the way they, they, they made the, the catalyst is, it'll sound exciting, it's a mixture of iron and manganese, because that's obvious, I guess. But um, how they made it more efficient was, is they put effectively a hydrophobic glass coating over the little catalyst powder particles, and this helped with the conversion. What's interesting about that hydrophobic glass coating is it's, uh, it, that type of coating technique was pioneered in Australia about 20 years ago to coat other types of metal particles, particularly things like quantum dots. In fact, one of the researchers that really pioneered that's from Melbourne University. And you're seeing this Australian innovation that was actually used in a, a different type of medical particle actually being used in, in a completely different area in catalysis. And I just thought, one, it, it's cool about the, uh, the uh, more efficient converting of biomass, but two, made possible by Australian science from more than 20 years ago. So I just those two things together made it an interesting story to me. Yeah, it's definitely a big area where we, you know, we forget just how vast the uses are of you know petrochemicals in general, and they're in so many things. But uh, we're gonna have to change the way we live pretty quickly. Yep. Dr. Linden, what do you got for us? Well, Dr. Shane, a number caught my eye this week as I was scrolling through Twitter, uh, pretending that I was working. not my life. On no, yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretending that I was not working. <laughs> on uh, 3,400 metres. I saw this on a tweet. I was like, 3,400 metres. Holy moly. If you go up, 3,400 metres is Kosciuszko mm-hmm. plus Mount William in the Grampians. So those yep. two mountains. If you go across, that is about two suburbs. So it's a distance from where you are to uh, Johnson Street. So the Triple R Studios to Johnson Street. Mm -hmm. It's about two suburbs. And if you go down, 3,400 metres is the depth of the West Antarctic ice sheet core, the ice core. That was drilled. Uh, it was drilled back in 2011, mm. but 3,400 metres of ice core all the way down to nearly where the ice reaches the rock. Not quite. They didn't want to contaminate that special environment there, but not quite. And there was a paper published this week by researchers in the US and the UK that have used this 3,400 metres to put together the most complete carbon dioxide record and most um, sort of um, high temporal resolution, so, you know, um, not millennia to millennium or century to century of carbon dioxide in Antarctica. It goes back about 68,000 68, years. That's right. And these researchers, are, I mean, there's a lot of work, right, that can be done with this record. And I know we talked about ice cores in the past. Jenny loves talking about them as well. But this particular study was looking at abrupt changes in CO2, right, because 
over time, you do see that there are gradual changes in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that are, of course, captured by the little air bubbles that get trapped within the ice. But you can find uh, quick jumps or rapid changes in carbon dioxide of about 15 parts per million uh, that occur over a few centuries, which is quite fast in the geological record or in the glacial record. But most of the evidence of these quick changes has been limited to about the last 20,000 years or so. So this record adds another 40,000 years. And they were looking at um, sort of how these changes come about, right, and whether uh, there are there's different oceanic variations in play, different levels of uptake from sources on the land, sources in the ocean, whether circulation changes in the ocean are happening and those kinds of things. Uh, and that, that is all really interesting and, and um, relevant as well. But what also grabbed me about this paper was that they found the fastest change in their record, the, the fastest change of carbon dioxide, it's about 15 parts per million over a century, would be overshadowed by the changes we've got now within six years. Hmm. In this last change, right, we're going at about 2.5 parts per million every year and the fastest change they managed to find was 15 parts per million over a century. Yeah, wow. And the authors, um, they kind of take a positive light on this and they say, well, in some respects, that's kind of good because what we're looking at with this really long record is natural variations that can happen in carbon dioxide. So if we do get a natural variation in, in carbon dioxide, it's not going to be more uh, than. You know, yeah. It's not going to make it that much worse, which mm. is sort of a positive light. Um, but what we still don't know is really what causes these relatively big jumps in carbon dioxide yeah. over time. So now we've got this longer record. It can tell us a, a lot more about yeah. it. Just ca- like this image of this huge long ice core that stretches from Triple R all the way to, you know, the tram stop at Johnson Street. I was like, wow, that is amazing. And how much information there is still to find out from these tiny little bubbles within the ice. Yep. Some stage we're going to have to get some of the engineers in to talk about how they actually drill a core like that successfully because it's, it's a very, very difficult scenario. Dr. Laura, what do you got for us? Well, I was um, reading an article in New Scientist, the popular magazine, and it was talking about uh, there was just a short kind of article on how the Australian government has potential plans to use a herpes virus as a biological agent to control the carp population. And admittedly, I knew absolutely nothing about this or the issues of carp. So I went down a rabbit hole, so many articles on carp getting the war on carp and carp just being a massive invasive pest for Australians to be caught a carp. They're quite big carp. Mm, I'm yeah, sure you big. have, you know, yeah. you're a bit of a fisherman. Yep. Well, they're big. So Europe, European carp, just like the rabbits, you know, they were brought across from the Europeans. And around the 1960s, they really started to cause ecological destruction. They really started to become an issue. And now, sort of especially around the, um, the Murray-Darlin Basin, they make up up to 85% of biomass. Um, and, so, and they're sort of rife in Australian lakes and rivers now. And these guys, they... You know, they actually live a really long time. They live up to about 35, much longer in captivity. They're prolific breeders, so they're sort of out-competing native um, aquatic life. And also they're bottom feeders. So this means they stir up the sediment, they muddy the waters, light can't get in, algae grows. So basically there's been a huge decline of biodiversity, which people are attributing to this huge population of carp, which has um, sort of been, you know, invading our waterways over the past sort of, few years so 
In 2016, the federal government um, committed $15 million to a plan to control carp, and this is called the National Carp Control Plan. And this was to determine the feasibility of introducing a carp-specific herpes virus, which is called Cypronid herpes 3, as a biological agent to control the carp populations. So a lot of the research here has been done by CSIRO, CSIRO um, and... Um, the expected completion date of um, the plan of whether you know it would go ahead or not is meant to, is now June 2021, and that's been pushed back due to due to COVID 19 because a lot of the research efforts have been diverted there. But this plan is extremely controversial. Um, mm. If you sort of go and sort of take a look at what's out there on the internet, <laughs> this virus it offers no risk to humans or other um, fish populations. But one thing which you know might not come completely to mind but this is one of the major issues with it is the impact of mass carp cullings in in the waterways so it would expect it would be expected because you would expect to lose about 90 percent of the populations upon release of this virus there'd be millions of tons of dead carp so the it yeah. would be an absolutely enormous cleanup that would have to happen and the researchers are actually now kind of you know putting you know they're sort of working out the impact of having a lot of dead fish within water and what that happens to the oxygen levels, which would go down, spike in bacteria. So even though you're expecting the bounce back of this natural wildlife, you know, they might mm. sort of be offed by the low oxygen that would come from, if you know, you couldn't get in there yeah. if your re removal plan wasn't fast enough. And also there's, um, there's concerns from the RSPCA about the pain and suffering caused to the carp because it, att it attacks their gills so they can't breathe. It takes a little while for them to die. And also... Um, what would bounce back in the carp's place, whether it would be a new invasive species, there'd be viral resistance in the carp. There's, um, yeah, so a lot of the e ecological repercussions are unknown. So this this plan, the last bits of research are being done and then Jeez. whether it will go ahead, we'll know this year. Well, it's certainly one of those things. I mean, they, they should check where the cane toads eat carp. I mean, that that's probably something to look into. Yeah, and, and there's it, some genetically modified mosquitoes that don't allow malaria spread. They, that might be involved. I mean, yeah, and the, I... I, I get scared when I hear things like this because I think it, what, biology is But it worked messy. for the rabbits. Oh, it worked for the rabbits. It yeah, is. It worked well for the rabbits. It worked for the rabbits. But biology is messy, and the idea that you can predict the outcomes in a complex system is hmm, – I'm not so sure about that. I would, I would certainly be wanting to run this in a controlled way for quite a protracted period before anything yeah. else. So, yeah. Once you release the virus, you can't take it back. No, Viruses you cannot. are so unpredictable. No, you cannot. We've all suffered from recently. Yeah, and, so. and, and guess what? They they learn. They learn. You know, <laughs> they get better. And the carp get better too. That's the other thing. Like you can imagine this. If 10% of the population survives, super. Uh, you get the super We carp. might have some giant carp. Carp yeah, again exactly. part two. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, folks, we're going to have to leave the news there. Thanks, team. Uh, good chatting to you. Hopefully next time I see the three of you, it will be in the, in the studio. There's some big bits of perspex in the studio now I'm looking at, which um, – it's going to stop uh, Dr. Laura spitting on me again. But, uh, you know, <laughs> other than that, I'm not sure. But uh, hopefully we'll all be back in the studio again. Thanks, team. Chat to you soon. Hope so. Bye. Bye, Bye. Shane. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein the Go-Go on 3RRR. Uh, we have our first uh, two guests in our virtual studio already uh, waiting to be announced. Up first is Professor Mark Fabreo. He is the head of the Cellular and Molecular Metabolism Laboratory at the Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences at Monash Uni. Welcome, Mark. How are you going? 
I'm very well. Good morning. Good morning to you and your listeners. Good morning. And we have your daughter on the line as well, Eden Fabreo, who's uh, just finished her, well, finished her honours degree and is looking at, um, is working sort of in the lab at the moment, but looking at being a research assistant, perhaps having a research career. And we're going to be talking about this amazing father-daughter interaction as to what sort of careers people should have in just a moment. But Mark, before we do that, just uh, give us a quick rundown. You've done some really interesting work with regards to diabetes and lifestyle diseases. Just give, give us a quick minute on, on your work. Yeah, sure. Um, so, um, so I was actually trained as an exercise physiologist and um, about 20 years ago we discovered that muscle, skeletal muscle secretes uh, proteins that have um, biological function, which we called myokines. And, and because exercise is um, so beneficial to metabolic health, we started interrogating this and, you know, we, we started trying to develop, for want of a better term, sort of some exercise mimetics. And, and we, we managed to, um, to uh, synthesise a, a peptide over the last – we have, were doing the work over the 15 years. It was published uh, in 2019 and we're hoping to, um, to get this, uh, this chimeric protein into a clinical trial for, for um, metabolic disease. Hmm, excellent. And Eden, what about you? What, what have you been doing? You've finished your honours, but you've also done a bit of a summer project um, as well. What have you been working on? Yes, so um, I did finish my honours in December and then um, took a summer scholarship program just to continue the work. So um, my project focused on um, really understanding the role that type 1 interferons um, play on the anti-tumour immune response in triple negative breast cancer. Um, And I specifically looked at how um, these type 1 interferon, how the type 1 interferon pathway alters the response to chemotherapy. Right. And what is an interferon? Sounds like it interferes with some process. Is that... So um, it's an immunomodulatory cytokine. Um, So it is involved in the immune response um, and it can be involved in either a pro or anti-tumor immune response um, in many different types of cancers. Um, And yeah, I focused on, on... breast cancer. Right, right. Interesting. And that was at Peter Peter Mac, the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre? Yes, yes. Yeah. So I was at the Peter Mac um, in the Parker Laboratory. So yeah, nice, under the Nice building. So, nice building. Yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. It was, um, yeah, really good experience. And yeah, I loved Peter Mac. It was state-of-the-art facility, I think. Yeah, excellent one. Now, um, what was it like uh, growing up with a research dad like Mark? Was, was there any, you know, was there any chance you were going to do something else? I mean, was this locked in from day one? Definitely not. Um, I, I said earlier, um, I find it funny because, you know, growing up uh, with dad being in science, you know, I, I always said I will never ever do what you do I, I said I never <laughs> want to end up in science uh, and yet here I am following in his footsteps but now I've got a lot of memories um, I think particularly around you know grant writing time uh, it was always quite a stressful period um, for dad and um, you know I think seeing that was maybe why I didn't didn't want to do it but you know I'm pursuing it anyway so it <laughs> obviously yeah, do, do, do you appreciate a bit more, you know, when, when he came home now with that nature paper and, and sort of showed you and you're like, yeah, whatever. Uh, do, do, <laughs> do you appreciate the uh, the gravity of that a bit more now that you're in oh, the field? Oh, definitely, yeah. Uh, I've definitely 
learnt so much just being, you know, doing the year or the nine months of honours um, and appreciate can appreciate now, you know, how hard it is to get, you know, funding and grants and the amount of work that goes into each, you know, grant writing or paper. or And, yeah, I really don't think I understood back then what, a nature paper was or, you know, how important it was, but um, can definitely appreciate that now, yeah. I think, yeah. yeah. And um, you said that, you know, at that point in time you weren't, it was like no way, no way. I mean, what, what was the other option at that point in time? What were you thinking of doing? Um, well, I've always wanted to be a doctor, um, so to get a medical degree. On, obviously, that that's still something that, is a possibility uh, in the future. And I liked that science always kept that door open for me, which is part of the reason why um, I decided to do it. Um, so, yeah, that, that's sort of what I always wanted to do. And then one thing led to another and I just ended up um, in research. So, yeah. yeah. So what happened, Mark? What happened to the big plan of, uh, you know, don't follow in my footsteps, The uh, this stuff is too hard? Uh, I, look, I... I didn't. I don't think I ever um, tried to push Eden or indeed my younger daughter Gianna, you know, into into anything. Um, I I always um, have encouraged Eden just to do her best, and she does. She's terrific. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I, I personally, I, I do hope she goes to medical school because. Um, uh, I remember when I finished my PhD, I I thought about seriously about going to medical school, but um, you know we had family commitments, etc. And at the time, I thought, I, and this is the difference between Eden and I. Um, Eden Eden wants to be a caregiver. She's a she's a person who, if she does medical school will want to be a doctor and a good doctor um in my heart of hearts if i wanted to do um medical school it was uh to become a doctor and to to further my research career and i didn't think that um that was a very noble thing to do because then you would have been taking the position of someone who wants to be a good doctor and a good caregiver so i decided against it Hmm. so um i think um if, if Eden becomes a doctor, a medical doctor, um, there'll be good balance in the family. Yeah, I think uh, Mark. I mean, I, I, I'm assuming you agree with this, but there's, you know, there's a lot of push at the moment with regards to scientific careers and a lot of negativity around that because of the difficulties around grants and positions and so forth. But it, it really removes the thinking of, of science as a degree as an entry entry point to many other other working things. And I know that at universities we tend to train people to be academics as opposed to be broadly applicable to industry and, and government and other areas. But, I mean, I think we need more people educated in science but not necessarily more scientists at the moment because, you know, that that funding issue is so so substantial. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? 100%. Um, I agree. I think uh, – well, personally, I, I think we may be training too many PhD students with the expectations that they're all going to be – a PI, yeah, and that that just isn't going to happen. I mean, it can't. So when I did my PhD, which is a very long time ago, there were far fewer mm. PhD students. So it was it was kind of easy to either get a position, a teaching position, which is what I did, or or to do a postdoc. These days, it's it's really competitive. Um, but the other thing is, you know, 
we need the PhD students and, and the honours students that we train, we need to, to actually um, mentor them in a way that we say to them that there are many opportunities. Now, and, and just to give you an example, um, my very first uh, PhD graduate, uh, a, a gentleman by the name of Damien Angus, um, who I co-supervised with Mark Hargroves, um, he he finished his PhD and and gained the tools to be a critical thinker and 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 and, and a critical um, analyst of data, which is what we do in science. And he went on to work for um, for Bain, a company mm. that that can can look go in a business and look at how. Um, how businesses can can operate um, uh, more smoothly uh, uh, and more efficiently. Yep. Now he did a PhD in medical research, but the, the tools that he gathered in order to be yeah. a critical thinker allowed him to be very successful. Yeah, look, it's it's that thing of um, you know broadening people's horizons and looking at what they can be. Folks, we're gonna we're gonna move on. So um, great talking to you both, Eden. Good luck, and I hope you. It sounds like you, your dream there is to you know to, to care for people, which is a great thing to to want to do. So I hope you get the opportunity to do that. And taking your research background into into your medical life will be profoundly important because it will keep you up to date in you know for your patients which will be fantastic. So, Mark, Eden, great chatting to you. Um, good luck with this uh, father-daughter discussion on careers. It sounds like it's been going on for a while, and thanks for being on Triple R today. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on Through to Blah. On the line now, I have Dirk Wellsford. He is the Chief Scientist of the Australian Antarctic Division. Good morning, Dirk. How are you going? Good day, Shane. How are you going? It's great to talk to you. Now, first of all, you grew up in the west of Melbourne. I grew up in the west of Melbourne. Uh, were we on the yeah, same street? that's right. Whereabouts were you? Uh, so I grew up in Williamstown. So, um, yep, that's yep. where I... Uh, oh, very nice. Went to school and then... Um, I moved down to Tassie back in 1998 to, to start my PhD, so, and I've been down in Hobart ever since. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I was in Yarraville, so a little bit further from the water. But I can oh, ima- yeah, yeah, yep, yeah. Yep. I can imagine being in Williamstown, being right on the, right on the water. Is that what sort of initiated your interest in uh, you know, a lot of the fishery stuff and various things? Yeah, for sure. Like um, sort of thinking back, the, the sort of the big inspirations for me were, you know, looking in rock pools when my grandfather and father were fishing. Used to love that. And then the other ones were um, a book that I was given when I was two by my great-grandparents about Jacques Cousteau. Oh, wow. And the, uh, and the undersea. And then, of course, um, David Attenborough, you know, amazing, inspired uh, many generations of um, biological scientists, I think. And, um, yeah, I got to meet him when I was, when I was five because my parents took me into a, a book signing for mm. Life on Earth. And, yeah, that pretty much locked me in to um, being a scientist from that very early age. And, and where did you sort of start down in, um, in UTAS? Um, what was the sort of area of research you started on when you first got there? Yeah, so um, I did my um, undergrad science at Melbourne University and then I went and did, a, did some work at um, the Queenscliff Marine Station, which was mm-hmm. a joint venture between the university and, and the state government. Did quite a lot of work on... Um, the early life history stages of fishes that live on seagrass beds down there. And then um, 
the opportunity came up to to get a scholarship to do a PhD down in Tassie, and that was looking at um, the biology of some reef species that were just starting to be targeted commercially. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's when I started to get um, really exposed to combining my biological work with more sort of applied and policy-orientated stuff, so yep. trying to work out how to manage fisheries um, when you don't have a lot of information about the biology and ecology of the species that's being targeted. Um, so from there, I've sort of got more and more exposure to um, working with, you know, working in with fishers as stakeholders and government as stakeholders to try and give them advice that was useful out of the science that we were doing, and then that just and then that segued into the work that I did at the Antarctic Division running the fisheries team there, and then over the years sort of got more and more responsibility until now I'm the chief scientist. Yeah, I, I love you. I, I'm trying to just picturing the, the map in my head, but you know, Williamstown, a little bit further south to Queenscliff, I think. You know, you draw lines more or south, and a little bit further south to Tasmania, and then bang, you took a, bit, a pretty big leap. Um, yeah, can, yeah. Can, give us a, a bit of a feel. I'm not sure everyone's aware of just how big the Antarctic Division is in terms of people, personnel, equipment, the base, yeah, etc. So, um yeah, look, I've, I've got to say, I, I hardly knew anything about it either before I before I joined. So there's about 400 people there, mm. um, and we're responsible for uh, looking after all of Australia's interests in Antarctica. So we, we, we have a science branch, which I run. It's got about 70 people in it. And then we have a whole bunch of other areas that work on things like maintaining assets down there. So we have um, three research stations on the continent, one on Macquarie Island, and operations, so how we actually get people there and back. So we have a big um, a big area of logistics. Um, we have a policy area as well, so um, that um, looks after how Australia looks after its legislative and treaty obligations because Antarctica is, is managed under a, these multilateral treaties, which we call the Antarctic Treaty System. So, yeah, it's... Um, it's a really interesting workplace because you've got all of those different facets all, all under one roof. Mm. I, I can imagine, too, you must have um, scientists from sort of all walks of life. I mean, I, you know, I, I started my career, didn't end up there, but I started my career in astrophysics, and I can't imagine a, a sweeter location than um, you know, being, being down there in terms of yes. the, the, the cleanliness of the air and the sky and, and everything. But you, you right. must have yep. every range of research, in a sense, in that group of 70 yeah, so we, we do have, we do span a lot of um, a lot of different areas. So um, we have some astrophysicists. Um, they're, they're now working more on climate science, but they, mm. you know, we have people from that sort of background. Yep. Um, there's sort of three main streams of work that we have within the Australian Antarctic Division. Um, so one is is looking at um, managing the fisheries and wildlife that live down there. So there are fisheries for. Um, toothfish and krill, which people may have heard of. So krill is this small shrimp that's really important to the ecosystem down there and it's targeted by commercial fisheries, not by Australia but by some other countries, but, but we need to keep an eye on that because they're fishing off the Australian Antarctic Territory. Right. Um, we also try and look at how we can best conserve all of the unique and endemic um, animals that live down there, so all the whales, seals, penguins that people think of as iconic Antarctic species. Um, the great whales, which um, live in the Southern Ocean, they were they were hunted very heavily um, by commercial whaling during the 20th century, and they still uh, haven't recovered. Um, so we need to keep an eye on them, make sure that we're um, managing that carefully. The other thing is to look in the environmental protection. So what 
what's going on in terms of human activities. Human activities can have an impact on the the um, Antarctic environment, so we need to make sure that that's carefully managed. And then the third part is the um, the important role that Antarctica plays in the global system, particularly from the point of view of climate. So yeah. Antarctica is so big um, and um, the ocean around it is is so big that it, it drives a lot of the world's climate. So we, we study that as well. Yeah. So that, that, Three big themes that we look at at the AAD. I remember, and people who know me well know my recollection of guests that were on here literally thousands of guests ago for me is often poor. But I believe we had Robin Schofield on many years ago looking at mm-hmm. atmospheric contaminants that were detectable in Antarctica from the Northern Hemisphere. I mean, you must yes. – how much do you see, like especially in your area with the fisheries and so forth, I mean, how much do you see the impact of even, even, even our hemisphere but the Northern Hemisphere mm-hmm. locally – in Antarctica, yeah. Look, it, it, it's incredible um, the sort of signals you see of the of the connectivity uh, amongst you know all the world's systems. So you know, unfortunately, we are starting to see things like um, plastic pollution turn up in Antarctica. Mm. Um, you know, the connections through the atmosphere is another big thing. You know, um, Tasmania, the area is you know some of the cleanest in the world, and, and indeed in Tasmania, um, we have one of the stations that monitors. Um, what the sort of baseline for cleanliness of air is. Um, but we do see, uh, you know, contaminants um, which don't originate in Antarctica turning up in Antarctica. So um, there's pers- persistent organic pollution, um, which comes from, you know, chemicals that humans manufacture um, for various reasons turning up in Antarctica and turning up in in, in animals. Um we're certainly nowhere near the sort of issues that you see in the Northern Hemisphere. I mean, the, the Southern Hemisphere, we're just lucky that the, the levels of population industrial development down here are, are nowhere near the same scale as up in the Northern yeah. Hemisphere. So um, it is it is cleaner, but we are certainly able to detect um, yeah. evidence from human activity. So, yeah. yeah. And, and look, humans have been in Antarctica a long time as well. And I, I mentioned whales. So, you know, whales were heavily um, harvested. There used to be a lot of activity um, harvesting seals back in the uh, 1800s. Uh, they used to take penguins as well. So, unfortunately, um, there are, you know, quite significant parts of Antarctica which we couldn't really call wilderness. You know, mm. they're, they're really recovering from yeah. um, being, um, you know, harvested in an unregulated way. So, yeah. Dirk, in your role, I suppose what I'd like to know is how much of your sort of day-to-day is in managing the interactions between Australia's scientific interests and mm-hmm. all of the other countries, of which there are many, that yep. have bases or, or, or personnel uh, or even just research projects involving Antarctica? Yeah, so, look, um, Antarctica is uh, fundamentally an, an international space, you know, it, it the Antarctic Treaty set aside Antarctica to be a place of um, peace and science back in the in the 1950s. Mm. Um, so, and the other thing is that Antarctica is so big, and the questions we're trying to address there are so big that they're really beyond the resources of any single country to to address properly. So, so we we collaborate because it's the right thing to do, but also because we have to, you know, to be able to understand what's going on down there. So. For example, we're in the process of trying to recover a million-year-old ice core. So um, the ice on Antarctica is many, many kilometres thick. It's been deposited over many, many hundreds of thousands of years. And so we believe we've found a location where if you drill down 
to the bottom of the ice. The ice at the bottom will, will be over a million years old and it'll have bubbles in it intact from the atmosphere um, when, that, when that ice first formed. So it's going to give us an unprecedented understanding of the history of the atmosphere mm. and put what's going on now into context. So it's, a, about a million years ago is the last time that the atmosphere had, had as much carbon dioxide in it as it does now. So we'll be able to understand a lot more about what the sort of prognosis for the world is under climate change. Now, we can't do that all ourselves. So, for example, just this year, um, we had colleagues from France drop off um, part of the equipment at that site where we're going to drill for the for the um, the million-year ice core. We're, we're part of a whole consortium that involves countries from all, over, all across Europe to try and deliver that. Um, we have collaborations with lots of other countries as well. You know, we work with New Zealand, we work with the UK, we work with the US, we work with Japan, we work with France a lot. Um, so, yeah, it, it's really... Um, really an international and collaborative space. I really enjoy that because, you know, you, you get to interact with, with people from a lot of different cultural backgrounds, you know, that even though science is our lingua franca, they all have a different perspective that they bring to, mm. to Antarctic science, and, and I find that really exciting. Yeah. I suppose, too, there must be some sites, and I'm not, you know, I, I don't know them uh, directly, but, you know, things like Lake Vostok and so forth, that where the site mm. actually crosses those boundaries, uh, the subsurface lakes and so forth. And so, you know, if Russia wants to drill, as they were talking about doing you know, some, some years ago now into Lake Vostok, mm. that does affect everyone involved in, in the Antarctic or the science space. Yeah, that's right. So, um, and so there's processes under the treaty. Um, it, every activity like that, so let's say Russia wants to drill in Lake Vostok, they have to present uh, uh, an environmental impact assessment to mm-hmm. the Antarctic Treaty partners to to make sure that everybody's comfortable that um, the benefits of that scientific activity outweigh the co- the environmental costs. Yep. And so we, we have to do that as well in Australia. So if we want to, you know, for example, undertake a, a, um, a research voyage where we're going to catch krill, we have to let all the other members know that um, all the other members of the Antarctic Treaty and the Convention for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources. Sorry, it's a bit of a mouthful, but <laughs> we, we let them know what we're planning and they, they, they have the opportunity to, to comment or, you know, even in some circumstances, if um, they even block our activities. Mm. So um, we need to be able to present a, a compelling case um, but that the, the work we're doing is worthwhile. Yeah. Dirk, do you spend a lot of time down there yourself or are you mainly based up in Tasmania? No, no, I don't. Um, um, I spend a lot of time um, in Hobart and before COVID I spent a lot of time travelling around the world going to um, various meetings mm. um, representing Australian science to the other Antarctic members. So, um, yeah, unfortunately I haven't had a lot of time in Antarctica. I, I did get to go down there um on a flight, I've managed to fly from Hobart to Wilkins, which is pretty astounding, you know, to be able to, um, in sort of four or five hours, fly from Hobart to Antarctica, um, you know, a really amazing experience. And, yeah. and the environment down there is really like nothing else I've ever experienced. You know, it's, um, you're, the air is so clear, like you can see so far, that your your sense of perspective is, is really, um, is almost warped. Mm. Like it's really hard to work out how far away things are. Everything's sort of shades of white and blue. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really amazing place. And you can really see it gets under people's skin. They, they really, really want to um, keep going back there and, and really want to make sure that we look after it. Yeah, I can imagine that, uh, that need to protect it and need to learn from it and just share it 
across the world as uh, it would be very intense having been there. I know our own uh, Dr. Jenny Martin from from our show uh, went a year or so ago and um, you know came back with some amazing um, stories about her time there. And it's you know it's a place I think most of us would like to visit at some stage. I'm, I'm sure I want to want to live there, but I would love to spend some some time. Yeah, there. it'd be a yeah. harsh harsh environment. But um, well, yeah, Dirk, we yeah, incredibly harsh, but uh, amazing. Yeah, just. Really, really beautiful. Yeah. Well, Dirk, we've got uh, some of your colleagues coming on over the next month. We've uh, decided here on Triple uh, R to do uh, an interview every week for a month, uh, uh, just uh, covering some of the various areas of Antarctic science. It was good to start with yourself, um, you know, given your yeah, position. No Thanks so much for chatting to us today, and good luck with the ongoing work, and I hope you get all the support and so forth you need to, to keep yeah, it going. Yeah, no, thanks very much, Shane. And, um, yeah, you're, I'm glad you're talking to some of the other scientists. There's some amazing stuff going yeah. on. Yeah, that'll be fun. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to a science show if you haven't worked it out. But uh, we have a very special guest coming on the line now. Her name is Amanda Smith. She's from the Melbourne, uh, the North Melbourne um, Lost Dogs Home. She's the shelter supervisor. Good morning, Amanda. How are you going? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me, Shane. It's great to have you on. I mean, we have a big announcement that we're going to make, which some people may have already seen, but uh, it's pretty exciting exciting stuff for me. Um, but one of the things that we've talked about many, many times on this show is the, the impact that you know local cats can have on wildlife and so forth. And so we've talked a lot about sort of that, that impact on the other side part, but we haven't talked a lot about the work that places like the Lost Dogs Home and so forth do with regards to trying to mitigate that and help these animals and so forth. So it's good good having you on. And before we get to the sort of a, my new role, which is, um, you know, it was a bit of a surprise because, you know, I'm a bit of a cat convert. Um, I thought I was allergic to cats for 25 years until I had a, you, you can get tested these days. Did you know that? Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I was li- I was under a lot of pressure from my family to get a cat, and so I was lining up for immunotherapy, and then I found out it wasn't allergic to cats after all. So I had no I had no choice. Um, but we'll talk about that in a moment. First of all, just give us a bit of an idea of how many animals the Lost Dogs Home um, takes care of in in say twenty twenty in a given year. How how extensive is it? Oh, uh, the Lost Dogs Home. Uh, we provide care for about nine thousand every year, wow. um, and that's through our North Mal- our North Melbourne and our Cranbourne facilities. Yep. Um, and um, essentially, we obviously look for the, the owners, original owners, if we can place them back with the owners, and if not, then we rehome them. And last year, we were able to rehome over five thousand of those cats and kittens that came to us. How do you find the time? I mean, we'll, we'll get to that, but. Was it worse in 2020 with COVID and the lockdown and everyone wanting a friend? Was that was it different? It was different. I wouldn't say it was worse. It was certainly different and it raised its own challenges. Um, but um, I suppose one of the good things, the silver lining that came out of COVID is we actually had an increase in our adoptions. Oh, wow. So mm-hmm. last year, so the calendar year for 2019-2020, uh, oh, sorry, the um, financial year, was actually one of our most successful. In the, um, we did, uh, as I said, over 5,000 adoptions, which was a 17% increase on the year before. Mm. Um, and so, you know, obviously everybody being at home, looks like they all wanted to have some sort of furry companion at home and that yeah. increased our adoption rates, which was great. Do, do you think there's going to be a lot of really pissed off animals as people return to work and then, you know, they're used to having their humans waiting on them all day? <laughs> do you think there's going to be – I mean, we talk about – I mean, we very seriously talk about the mental health effects of, of this on, on people, but are we going to have some serious problems with our animals as well and behavioural problems creeping out of that, do you think? 
look, we might see some some different behaviours in our animals as we start returning to work. Um, I think some of the cats might enjoy it, right. <laughs> get some more alone time. Yep. Um, but certainly the, the animals that have been um, placed into homes while people have been working from home more um, may find it a bit of a challenge mm. when the humans start going back to work more times. Um, and so the important thing there is prepping them for that. So yep. start doing time away from home and, and teaching them how to be on their own. Lots of enrichment things to do while you're not there. Um, but um, certainly uh, at this stage we haven't seen any more sort of extra animals coming back into the shelter or anything that's related to people going back to work. Obviously, we're only at sort of 50% of people back at work yet, so we'll, we'll see what happens when the other 50 go back. But, um, you know, we're yeah. always there to help the animals. Yeah, look, whatever, I mean, that's great. To, yeah, that was going to be my next question was around are we seeing an uptick in, in the number of animals you're seeing as a result of people not being home to, to have that interaction? But that's great to hear that, that you're not seeing that. I mean, maybe it's early days, but it's, it's certainly positive that you know, people have fallen in love with their animals and want to keep them which is great. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And like during, even during that increase in adoption times, um, we didn't, our, our adoption processes, they all still remain the same. Uh, the way we kind of work through with people to make sure that they were going to be appropriate adopters, that all remain the same. Um, so, you know, obviously our hope is that the people who have decided to adopt Mm. are still going to continue with that even when they go back to work. Yeah. Now, we should mention, you know, I, I of course, have uh, taken on one of these cats. In fact, now I've got two, uh, two, second one this week. And as a result of this interaction with the lost dogs, which I have to say was amazing. I mean, I, I, I interacted with my first cat that we chose um, through a video link through one of your amazing staff named Amelia, who sort of showed us around the cattery and you know, interacted with all the animals so we could see what they were like and so forth. And we, we've found an amazing cat as a result of that interaction, which was great. And, and you guys have now asked me to be one of the new ambassadors for the Lost Dogs Home. So what, what do I have to do? What does that mean? Do I, do I walk around with a robe? <laughs> we should get you one all decked out in yeah, LVH blue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. something like that. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, um, this, but yeah. look, essentially, essentially, you know, you're already doing what we're asking yeah. you to do, and that's to talk about, you know, the pleasures of owning a pet and doing all the right things to look after them, and then obviously spruiking the the rehoming and adoptions process rather than mm. purchasing them through pet stores and such. Yeah, and there's some big messages there, aren't there, around you know desexing of animals and so forth, so especially cats, where breeding is somewhat uncontrolled. And as I said earlier, you know, we have this environmental damage issue from those cats, which is not, you know, we can't blame the cats. You know, it's not the cats' problems. It's a human problem. Um, but, you know, the desexing of the cats, the, the addressing of cats that are sort of just not owned, that are just, you know, roaming around the streets, that don't have homes. So it's, it's A, you know, our responsibility to keep, you know, those animals safe and cared for, but also the native animals they can affect. And, and I think the third piece is really around just the value they have to our mental health at the moment, which... Given the year we've had and the year we may be having, um, it's pretty pretty important, yeah. Correct, yeah. So with the um, the cats, obviously this time of year, with the warmer weather, the longer days, we normally see an increase in cats out and about and mm. increase in in numbers because this is the time when kittens are born. So you've got males and females out looking for each other, and then you've got girls looking after their kittens and such. So it's um, there's a lot more out there at this time of year. Um, one of the curveballs that, that COVID threw was that 
because uh, people weren't allowed to go out and do their jobs, that also affected the animal management side of things from our councils. Um, So it meant that they weren't able to do the normal amount of animal management methods that they would normally use. Um, So that's led to an increased population from that perspective as well. So those kittens that were born last year that might have um, gone through the the system of being rehomed and de-sexed, they're out there breeding as well at the moment. So those numbers are increasing. Um, So it's really important that, um, uh, you know, the the community help us in what we need to do now as well. So we're we're getting in as many as we can. We're de-sexing and rehoming through our our shelter um, processes. Uh, we've also got our de-sexing van um, called mm-hmm. Maddie. Yep. Um, and she's, you know, she's going to get back on the road soon and she'll be out visiting our different councils and helping people get their animals de-sexed at low cost and microchipped. Um, but essentially the other thing that the community can do directly is that if you're caring for a cat that's, um, that you don't necessarily view as yours, if you, if you know that there's no owner, you go through the process of ensuring there's no owner, you know, if you can take responsibility for that cat, get it de-sexed, microchipped, get its parasite control, vaccine done, and give it a nice, safe place to, mm. to have refuge and, and, and a home. Yeah, look, I think it's a responsibility that we do have, and it's one that we maybe, you know, we all need to take a bit more seriously than we have in the past, and especially, as you say, there's a bit of an uptake at the, uptick at the moment with regards to the numbers. I think um, mm-hmm. we've we, we got us to the end here, but I just wanted to also mention, like, one of the great things I found in getting kittens from you guys was how how beautifully you match the temperaments with what we needed. And that's something you won't get from a pet store or even from some breeders, you won't get that. And I think for me, there was a one beautiful cat we just sort of fell in love with. And your staff said, look, that cat's a bit of an angry cat. You may not want that cat. <laughs> and we're like, oh, you know, but it looks so great. You know, but yeah, that, that element of matching them effectively to, to family circumstances and so forth, I think is a, is a service that you guys don't talk about enough. It's, it's, it's a spectacular service that helps a lot. It helps people have permanent homes for the animals rather than temporary ones. So, Amanda, thanks so much for, for chatting to us today on Einstein and Gogo. And thank you much, so much for giving me the the privilege of being one of your ambassadors i'm i'm really looking forward to what we'll get up to in the year in promoting you know care for these animals and 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 helping them as much as possible thank you very much for your time and anyone looking for adopt visit dogshome.com excellent thanks amanda see you later no worries thank you Folks, uh, we're pretty much out of time for me, Dr. Shane, and Einstein and Gogo. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening to Triple R. Remember, science is everywhere, and have a great Sunday. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.